Hello everyone and welcome to Please Expand. Uh, today we have a wonderful interview lined up with uh, Michael Hunter, author of The Decline of Magic. And uh, I'm also very lucky to have uh, a uh, Julia doing the interview with me. Hello. So you're now being upgraded, Julia, from a pre and post interview uh, presenter to um, actual interviewer. It's been very exciting and I actually want to do more. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so we'll be interviewing Michael Hunter on his book, The Decline of Magic, which came out in 2020, published by Yale University Press. Okay, so to begin with, um, why don't you start by telling us something about Michael? So Michael's, you know, has had a very uh, fascinating career. He's a historian. Currently, he is a emeritus professor of history at Birkbeck University, London. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he's best known for his books on Robert Boyle. Mm -hmm. He's sort of the, the Boyle man. Mm -hmm. uh, I think his most famous book on Boyle is called Boyle Between God and Science, published in 2009. I have to admit, I haven't read it unfortunately but you i would didn't need to admit that i would like to read it <laughs> well, i appreciate the honesty yeah um wonderful and uh maybe it's worth starting from a brief overview on the book we're gonna interview him about today right so the book is called the decline of magic and it sort of half borrows its title from keith thomas's religion and the decline of magic published in 1971 and Michael Hunter's book sort of situates itself uh, in the context of Keith Thomas's book, um, and it tries to offer a more uh, fleshed out understanding uh, for why magical beliefs declined. Uh, so Michael Hunter is a huge fan of Keith Thomas's book, but you know he has a, a, a qualm with it, and that is that Keith Thomas actually says very little about why magic declined. And so Michael Hunter wants to explore this in his book. And so he talks about uh, these two sort of main figures, theoretical groups, the orthodox thinkers and the free thinkers, or the wits. These are sort of the main theoretical oppositions. So you have the orthodox thinkers who tend to be clerics, but not exclusively. And they, they believe that there are supernatural phenomena. And that belief is kind of tied up with the belief in God and the belief that you can't not believe in God without also thinking that supernatural phenomena are possible. Otherwise, how else would God act upon the world, right? And then you have the free thinkers, the wits, who are these skeptics who think that supernatural phenomena is just a bunch of tosh. They're often accused of being atheists because of this, but they don't seem to be atheists. So... They seem to be sort of straddling this very tight, uh, this thin line uh, between believing in Christianity and not believing in the supernatural. And I guess that's why they're called free thinkers. And they're wits because they're probably very sarcastic and <laughs> they like a good joke at the expense of the clerics. Um, and so this is sort of the, uh, the general intellectual landscape that the book uh, deals with and then he talks about doctors and and just to clarify in what century are we so the book begins at around 1650s so the 17th century and michael hunter's account goes all the way up until the beginning of the 19th century so 1810s 1815s 
But uh, the real meat of the book is focused from about 1650 to 1750, I think. And then he sort of explores what happens a bit afterwards. And I believe its focus is England. Yeah, it's uh, England and a bit on Scotland. There is the chapter on second sight in Scotland. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. So for some reason in Scotland, it became very popular for people to believe that they had second sight, so the ability to foresee things. And uh, he thinks that that's an interesting case study that he's worth, that is worth exploring for the clan of magic. So there's a bit of that, but yes, primarily in England. And just as, as an anticipation, we are going to go through all the reasons for the decline of magic that Michael Hunter gives us one by one. Yeah, that's right. So this, this is going to be the structure of the interview. Yeah. So, I think uh, that's enough to get everyone going. I think you're ready for it. Uh, buckle up, because it's, uh, it's long, conceptually rich, and fascinating. <laughs> Don't scare people. <laughs> and Julia does excellently in her debut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've made her blush enough. So, without any further ado, uh, Michael Hunter and the Decline of Magic. Welcome to Please Expand. I'm Helios. And I'm Julia. My co-host for the day. And today we'll be interviewing Michael Hunter on his book, The Decline of Magic. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hello. <laughs> so uh, let's just start by introducing your book. Uh, your book uh, seeks to explain why magical beliefs declined in England and a bit in Scotland, uh, starting from the 17th century and going all the way to the early 19th century. Let's begin by focusing on the 17th century, uh, which is where the book sort of begins. Could you uh, maybe describe the intellectual landscape of the time? What are the competing ideologies? Uh, who are the most uh, prominent defenders? The intellectual landscape is dominated by two things. One is a reaction against the civil war and the so-called enthusiasm that had flourished at that point with people taking religious positions that, that seemed to the, the thinkers who I'm going to be describing as orthodox as irrational and enthusiastic. But then again, again, there is this development of ideas associated particularly with the thinker Thomas Hobbes, which presents a, a much more reductionist and cynical view of religious, religious and other matters. And th this is feared at the time to be implicitly atheistic. And the Orthodox are equally frightened of that because of the dangerous implications that it seems to su suggest. So there's a kind of balance being held by those who I would define as Orthodox between, as it were, enthusiasm on the one side and undue rationality on the other, and a, an attempt to sort of hold a balanced kind of intermediate position between the two, which um, is very much at the core of the ideas of the thinkers who I would define as Orthodox. And on the other side, we've got the, the free thinkers, the wits, the people that are causing yeah. them all this anxiety about the supposed growth of atheism. Yeah. What characterizes a free thinker? What makes a wit? 
<laughs> well, I suppose a, a disrespect for the for, for the kind of values that the Orthodox hold dear, a kind of a scepticism towards Orthodox values, an openness of ideas, um, which is seen as, as dangerous because of the extent to which it is in danger of jettisoning the, 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 the values which the Orthodox consider important. Okay, so your book is about the reasons why beliefs in supernatural phenomena declined. So we were thinking that maybe it would be good if we went through these reasons one at a time. And one, one such reason seems to be the transition from a Baconian to a Newtonian approach to science. So in the periods we're looking at, there were two competing approaches to science. One is inspired by Francis Bacon, and it favors evidence. And so roughly the idea is that one first gathers evidence and the more the merrier. And then once you have enough evidence, you attempt to design a satisfactory theory. The other one of Newtonian inspiration instead designs a theory and then makes sure that any given phenomenon or new bit of information will be explained in its light. So in other words, in the face of an observation that conflicts with a well-established theory, the Baconian scientist will give priority to the observation, to the evidence, whilst the Newtonian will hold on to the theory and make sure that anything that doesn't fit with, with the theory will be explained away. And you explain how in the 18th century, the Newtonian approach is the winning one. And this shift in scientific style seems to have an impact on the fortune, or rather on the misfortune, of supernatural belief. So could you expand a little on the rise of the Newtonian approach and the decline of supernatural beliefs? Well, I suppose what, what concerns me about the Newtonian approach is that it, it seems to encourage a kind of dogmatic anti-supernaturalism. That's what I observed, uh, slightly to my surprise in a way, in the case of attitudes to second sight in Scotland, this, the, the, these empirical observations that um, certain people seem to have a premonition of the future, which couldn't be explained by natural means, that it's on the basis of a supposedly Newtonian approach, of, of an appeal to laws of nature, the, the, these kind of concepts, not that explicit, but it, the terminology that's used, that suggests that it's on, that, on those grounds that people are rejecting the supernatural. Now, whether that's really the reason, or whether, in a way, this is an excuse that they they use to account for their, for their rejecting something that they would otherwise re have rejected on other grounds is, is, a, is another question. And in a way, this takes us back to one of the central theses of my book, that people, as it were, just seem to have made up their minds of their wish to reject the, the, the supernatural and, and really then just sort of look around for potential explanations for it. And Newtonianism comes to hand because they can make this claim on that basis and they, they thereby are aligned with a sort of fashionable ethos in science. Shall we then perhaps uh, flip the order of explanation and say that it's actually the willingness to reject supernatural beliefs that contributed to the fortune of Newtonianism? Well, it, it may be, but I, I suppose what concerned me was that the fact that there is this clear empirical evidence for ostensibly supernatural phenomena, which I personally would prioritise in a, in a kind of 
Boylean way. You know, I, I take my I, I, my allegiance is with Robert Boyle and his sort of in, instinctive wish to respect the data that comes to light through sense observation and experiment, etc. And and I would um, prioritize that. And therefore, that is, in my view, what's defective about the the view of the of the people who are taking this this supposedly Newtonian view is that that's precisely what they're not doing. That they're failing to take account of empirically verifiable evidence. Just out of curiosity, are there any instances of people that try to use Newtonianism to defend the existence of supernatural phenomena? Um, yes, I think so. Yes, I, I mean, the, the, for instance, Newton's successor is in the chair of mathematics at Cambridge, William Whiston, who ultimately was thrown out, but who continues to have a very active career thereafter. He he believes that, you know, that, that all of these all the supernatural phenomena that, that, that other people are rejecting can be vindicated according to such principles. Okay. So, so, so yeah, okay, interesting. So Newtonian science, so this speaks to your point then, right? That it's not the it's not the uh, irrefutability of the fact that the Newtonian principles deny supernatural phenomena, but it's the pre-existing beliefs of the individuals that want to use it to affirm what they already believe. That that would be that would be the way of my take on it. Yes. Yes. Mm, yeah. uh, okay. So an, another another aspect that you highlight a lot is the accusation of fraud. Uh, so the accusation of fraud seems to play a central role in the decline of magic. And not unlike today, many people were quick to accuse witnesses of supernatural phenomena of fraud. So, and this brings us to one of the most famous cases of magic in the 17th century, or at the very least, the most famous case that you discussed, the demon drummer of Tedworth. So it's interesting for our discussion because it's a situation where a supernatural event was taken by many to prove the existence of magic, but was also the target of accusations of fraud. Uh, you know, they thought it was being made up for the purposes of fame or perhaps to make some money off it. But before we discuss the particulars, uh, could you just introduce a bit the the Tedworth case to everyone? Yes. Well, the, the, what happened was that this excise officer, um, John Mompesson, arrested a, a man who was making a nuisance of himself with a drum in Wiltshire and confiscated the drum and took it home to his house. And, and as it were, thought no more of it until strange noises and appearances occurred around the house. It, it, it's a classic case of what became in the 19th century be known as a poltergeist, whereby there are strange knockings and, and sounds and smells and everyone is really upset and disturbed by it. You know, chairs move, move around the house with, with no evident apparent reason and there are noises outside and bangings on the walls and all of this sort of thing. And it, it's, it's clearly slightly alarming. And because of the climate of opinion of the time, people immediately think it might be due to witchcraft. And so the man who had owned the drum, William Drury, is accused of being a witch and, and causing these, these strange appearances. And so that, that's the sort of scenario. And as you say, initially, Mompesson believes that it shows clear evidence of the existence of witchcraft and therefore of the devil and is really quite is initially he is you know almost reconciled to the nuisance of the the disturbances because the, of the evidence they seem to provide of the reality of these supernatural phenomena but then and and th this is based on letters that he writes to an oxford don who he's in contact with which survive and which give a really interesting account of the episode not least because you can actually watch the stages of his his attitude developing and so initially 
he's he's alarmed by these phenomena and worried by them. But equally, he is intrigued by the extent to which it does genuinely seem to show, demonstrate the, the significance of the supernatural. But then at some point, some skeptics come along who, who suspect it's all a fraud and who ask, who ask for his permission to take up the floorboards and search the house. And he's really alarmed and upset about this. And that really sets in train a confrontation between these two attitudes towards the event, which continue for a century, really, you know, for, for, for long afterwards, of skeptics who are convinced that it's a fraud and believers who consider that it's a, rich, a genuine case. And, and are, are, you know, that that's continued to this day. You know, there are still those who believe that Tedworth is a genuine poltergeist case and shows that the existence of the sort of supernatural powers that poltergeists are thought to be associated with. Whereas on the other hand, there are those who have, have dismissed it as a fraud. And, you know, this this balance of rival views has continued ever since. Just uh, very briefly, you mentioned that Montpesson becomes almost pleased by the existence of the poltergeist because it affirms the existence of the devil, ultimately, since it would be the, the, ma- the evil magic of the devil that would give uh, power to these individuals and to these events. That, might, that, that will strike people as strange. Is that because it's affirming the existence of God? as well is is that the the sort of the delight that he gets from seeing the existence of the devil yes i mean the, the Mompson's first letter to john creed who who he um writes the letters to at oxford is very querulous he's worried that it, it shows god's displeasure with him that the fact that these disturbances occur you know it's very it's very humble self-effacing letter in which he he worries about what terrible sin he has committed and and in a way this would be the devil working as God's subordinate to to punish him through these diabolical interventions. This is obviously within the context of the, the language of witchcraft of the period. So it's very much sort of a theistic view, but with the devil playing an active role alongside God. And so, and so this case, amongst others, is a is an example of how susceptible magic or the witness of supernatural phenomena is to accusations of fraud and something that I was wondering was why didn't defenders of supernatural phenomena accuse their their detractors of fraud in turn is there something peculiar about magic that leaves it especially vulnerable to the accusation of fraud. Well, I mean, magic is, in a way, that, that, that those who are making the accusation of fraud are not really open to that accusation because how can the accusation of fraud is 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 one way? I mean, that, that basically the phenomenon occurs and either it is fraudulent or is not. I mean, you you can't really accuse that those who are making the claim of fraudulence of fraudulence themselves. I don't think. Well, and probably just insofar as. For example, there's a, the the poltergeist cues, uh, and then someone says, "No, it's not really happening. You're faking it." And I respond, "No, you are faking it because the evidence is so strong that you are like you're accusing me of fraud." Getting yeah. No, I see what you're saying. I mean, basically, falsehood is on the part of the people making the claim of fraud. Yes, that's precisely the counter accusation that was made, you know, that and, and we go back to this view that it's all a matter of preconception, yeah. you know, that, that it's because the skeptics want it to be a fraud, that they claim it's a fraud. And and I was very interested to find that there are people who come along le- later in the 17th century to say, no, no, 
you know, the prepossession is on the part of the of those who are making the claim of fraud, the, not the true believers, and that the evidence, you know, that the empirical evidence suggests the truth of the phenomenon. Nice. That's fascinating. Okay, so let's move on to another cluster of reasons that are all to be found around the development of a new science of medicine, uh, to put it that way. So, first of all, the Tedworth case elicited also other kinds of reactions besides accusation of fraud. Not everyone thought that supernatural beliefs were due to ill will or a lack of sincerity. One increasingly influential explanation in the 18th century would refer to mental illness. A correlation was seen between supernatural beliefs and psychopathology. And in your book, you explain that doctors increasingly conceived of the operation of the mind as being fundamentally mechanical and material to the extent that they also thought that they could cure the mind, that the, 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 it was possible to heal mental illness as well as it was possible to heal physical illness. So we were wondering to what extent do you think that these dynamics and this rise of discourse around mental illness contributed to the decline of magic? And do you also think that it's fair to say that this way of conceiving of mental illness was due to, again, the favor of the Newtonian scientific method? I think you need to make a clear distinction. Well, th these doctors were making a clear distinction between the, the natural and the supernatural. Now, you can have a conception of the natural, which is completely non-Newtonian, that, that you can have a, a view of nature as against supernature, which just takes for granted that everything can be explained through observed phenomena and, and, and natural causation without needing to invoke in any way things outside nature, the, the supposed supernatural. And it, it, it seems to me that that, that that is as possible within an ancient system of ideas as an early modern one, that Aristotle or Galen would have a clear conception of, of, of their view of nature and what was possible within it. And that could be applied to, to people's mental state, their men, mental illness and health, as well as you, you don't really need a, a purely mechanical view. So I would regard the adoption of, of Newtonian trimmings, or indeed mecha mechanistic trimmings, it need not be Newtonian. In fact, the, the originator of this approach to medicine that claimed that they were applying mechanistic principles to the human body were not Newtonians, but Cartesians. And, you know, and, and, and therefore it, it's not a specifically Newtonian phenomenon, but it, it is using fashionable mechanistic models. And to that extent, I would again see it as just sort of, in a word, in a way, jumping on a bandwagon by way of, of explanation. And of course, the having defined th this mental state as, as an illness, the way in which they treat it is completely traditional. They let people's blood or give them severe purges and believe that they're curing them by, by that means. And so it seems to me that it really isn't, there's nothing specifically Newtonian about it, that that's just a kind of, a, a kind of superficial veneer placed on what is really quite a traditional attitude to mental health. Just a, a follow-up, as these kinds of mechanistic explanations of uh, mental health are growing, is there a decline in uh, accusations of fraud? Is there something particular about a mechanistic explanation of mental health that means that 
people are more likely to think that's the case than than make uh, yeah, accusations of fraud? Well, of course, the, the, the difficulty is that the, the, these cases are so few and far between that it's hard to quantify the, the extent to which people are making claims of fraud and making claims of mental illness. And of course, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, although on the whole, it seems to me that the, the, the accusation of, of mental disturbance is more inclusive in a way and, and in a way more hard to respond to because, you know, whereas you could test, you could in theory, you could test out accusations of fraud. You could actually find people who were who were responsible for the fraud. And indeed, there were cases in the 18th century of supposed supernatural phenomena where fraud was, actual conscious fraud was actually discerned. For instance, the case of the Cop Lane ghost in the 1760s, which turned out you know, to be a deliberate, a deliberate case of fraud. In other cases, fraud just remains a suspicion, is, there, is therefore rather hard to substantiate, as with the Tedworth case. I mean, no one ever really proved the, the fraud in the, in the Tedworth case. It was only ever, ever a suspicion. By comparison, the, the, the argument that it's due to someone's defective mental state is much more all-enveloping. You know, it's actually much more difficult to respond to because, you know, basically, well, one, it might not even be conscious on the, in the mind of the person who's doing it. You know, they might be subject to mental forces, as it were, beyond their control. And secondly, it's something that they're not really responsible for. You know, it's sort of beyond their because it's some, it's a defect in their mind, and in a way that makes it more accept, a more acceptable explanation for the the recipient of the accusation. So it, it seems to me that that really that is the reason, perhaps, why the the the, the claim of of mental mental instability com, comes to the fore at the expense of the fraudulent one. That it, in a way, a more enveloping and more there, therefore con, convincing argument. And just one last question on this. Is the reason why it's suddenly perceived as more enveloping, is the reason why it's suddenly more convincing because it's related to the rise of the new science, in this case with with Descartes? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I have a clear view, view on that. I mean, it, partly because, of course, um, it, it isn't dependent on the rise of the new science because it goes back to ancient ideas as well. You know, it was equally plausible in the context of Galenism. So it's really a question of whether people are... It, mainly concerned about looking for natural causes or human causes. Okay. And just continuing on this idea that psychological explanations uh, might be given to explain one's belief in supernatural phenomena, it seems to us that Montpesson's imagining of these disturbances, if they were imaginations, I'm not drawing any conclusions, (laughs) uh, (laughs) might have been out of guilt for his treatment of the drama, right? This is something... uh, that we might think nowadays. And this is something close to what Keith Thomas says about the social context for the rise of witchcraft accusations uh, in his book, Religion and the Kind of Magic, which we'll get to towards the end of this uh, episode. So very quickly, right, Keith Thomas posits that you've got these people in small societies, small communities, and they're rejecting these uh, generally poor old women. They're not giving them charity, and they feel guilty about this. And over the next few weeks, certain bad things happen to them, like butter doesn't set or their animals don't give birth to healthy calves or whatever. And they interpret this as witchcraft, uh, that the old woman is doing witchcraft on them as punishment for their their sins, I suppose. Do you think that Thomas's explanation for witchcraft accusations goes towards 
do you see that as being compatible with the Tedworth case as possibly explaining it and more generally to what extent can we think of supernatural stories as proxies for self-condemnation of social injustice? Yeah, I, I have no problem with that. It, and it seems to me that it's borne out by the by um, John Monbison's initial reaction to it of feeling guilt. I mean, you, in, in a way, you know, he, you could almost adopt the scenario leaving out the devil in that case, because he seems to worry that, you know, that although the devil is used as the proxy through William Drury, the drummer, to cause these disturbances, that he, he, he worries that he has sinned against God, you know, that, that it's, it's, a, it's a moral issue that he, that he faces. And so I, I'm entirely at home with that aspect of, of Keith Thomas's book. I mean, in fact, I have no... Well, we'll no doubt come my the relationship between my book and Keith Thomas's in in due course. But I have no real objection to the the, the whole intellectual structure of Keith Thomas's book. I mean, it seems to be brilliant in the way in which it expounded um, how witchcraft worked and all of these other phenomena, and indeed its its, its exposition of of um, changes in religion in the early modern period. You know, it was it was it was breathtaking when it came out in in 1971s, and and I. I, I filled with admiration for it <laughs> yeah so yeah <laughs> so um one concluding question on medicine and in particular to what extent we and they thought of medicine as a science because it seemed to us that they have quite a stark distinction in mind between medicine and medical matters and supernatural matters and yet when we as you were mentioning before, Galen, and when we think about the medicine they have in mind, seems quite magical to us, um, very briefly. Of course, you can tell more about this than I can, but quite generally, Galen's model was uh, uh, shaped around this idea that we have four humors and our well-being is connected to the balance between these four humors. So bloodletting is taken to be a panacea for all bad things that ha can happen to us and they tend to and, and, and a therapy for any sort of illness so what they take to be scientific medicine definitely would not live up to the standards of what we consider medicine or i don't know anything scientific so our question is how could they draw a distinction between natural sorry between medicine and supernatural matters and exactly what distinction was that? Oh, I think because they believe that the phenomena that they were studying, you know, that the, the system of the body that they believe they were expounding was purely natural. I mean, they, they they believed it was natural. They were just wrong, in a sense. You know, they they thought that you know that by removing the blood they would have desired effect. Um, they that they, they, they were wrong. Now, I mean, that obviously raises questions as to how they were able to go on tolerating this error for so long and living with it. But nevertheless, it has nothing to do with, with, with invoking the supernatural. They did not claim that by bleeding someone, you were, you know, bringing about a non-natural, uh, you know, supernatural phenomenon. They believed that, you know, that the, the, the body was controlled by completely natural um, events. And so that, you know, just as it were, it's different views of nature and nothing to do with supernatural. Okay, so the, the, the key distinction was not between science and magic, as we may understand it, mm. uh, but rather yeah. between natural and supernatural. Yeah. Okay. And so would, you mentioned the body, 
as you know, as so, so they conceive the body as being entirely within this natural causal chain. I mean, is there is there a, a reason why they might think that something was not curable because of supernatural reasons, or do they generally conceive that anything that might happen to your body was natural and that it could be dealt with naturally? No, I think I think they they are convinced that everything can be dealt with in, in nature, and you know this this is this goes back beyond Galen to Hippocrates. You know, Hippocrates is the treat the Hippoc- Hippocratic treatise, the sacred disease, is absolutely adamant that epilepsy has nothing to do with the supernatural, can be explained and treated in a, in a purely natural way. So this is a very very ancient distinction, and it seems to me you know that there is a very clear lineage running through of doctors claiming to be dealing with the natural so is this just part of a very minimalist framework of the role of the supernatural that the supernatural exists it's sort of the abode of god but it doesn't really interact with the natural affairs of the world well that that's the, as it were the hippocratic hippocratic galenic view i mean of course there are challenges to that in the early modern period through the the role of thinkers like paracelsus and the, the, the hermeticists etc who want to claim a much greater role for for magic and so in a way the doctors are all, always in in my view in this orthodox galenic doctors are always in this position of claiming that there's a strict limit to the natural but of course there are many other practitioners in the early modern period who we haven't really talked about very much so so far who extend the role of the supernatural and claim that they can conduct cures and 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 so on but by invoking it and of course they are even more attacked by those who who reject magic even more strongly than anyone else i think that there's still a source of surprise or tension for me because like I can understand from my standpoint the distinction between a sharp distinction between natural and supernatural because we 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 know the causes of natural processes or at least many of them but what they considered falling within the natural sphere must have sound very puzzling to them they must have come across illnesses, for instance, that they couldn't explain or rushes that they couldn't explain because they didn't have that kind of knowledge. So I think that what puzzles me is how could they be so adamant that it was a natural cause, you know? Because it seems that the world they were living it in was actually suggesting them or may have been suggesting that they, it wasn't, it was supernatural. So the fact that they thought that that was definitely a natural phenomenon seemed really to be a preconception rather than proved by the world they were living in. Mm. And if I did myself. No, I take the point. Well, I'm afraid we come back to preconceptions. You know, I mean, I think that they are predisposed to believe that everything must have a natural cause and to be reluctant. <laughs> reluctant to, accept, to, to accept anything else. And, and, you know, we come back in a way, it's slightly frustrating that we keep coming back to this um, to this issue of preconception because it, it planetary potential is is limited, and yet it seems it, it seems to be the only answer. I think it's also extremely <laughs> illuminating on the differences between that time and ours. I don't know. At least talking to you, I have the impression that at the time people were born in this world, where some truths were taken for granted in a very fundamental way and then you could not challenge them and then some people will say well 
that's the same thing happens to us now. But I don't think so. I think that we are extremely prone to doubt in, in, a, in a much more profound way than, than they were. And uh, I don't know. But does, it, that doesn't mean that we take, take for granted that things are, su are supernatural, i.e. do not have a natural explanation. We, we just presume that, the, that the, the, there is a natural explanation, but it hasn't yet been found, which, of course, is one of the key arguments against magic in the, in the period around 1700, which my book is focused on, that to sort of say, well, so much has been explained naturally and the boundaries of explanation constantly seem to be extending, that therefore just give it, give it time and there will one day be a natural explanation for things that apparently don't seem to have an explanation. Exactly. Perhaps someone in 400 years will say, oh, how could they be so stubbornly uh, holding on to the natural explanation? It's, it's, yeah. it's also quite disquieting and, as you said, illuminating to think that people are not persuaded by good arguments or by evidence or by things like this, but just latch on to whatever already supports what they believe. Even though probably I think we, we may be sinning in the same way. We may. We may very indeed, yeah. So, yeah. so far we've spoken about the decline of the, uh, the Baconian approach, the rise of the Newtonian science. We've spoken about accusations of fraud and the role they played in the decline of magic. And we've just finished talking about the role that new medical explanations for supernatural phenomena uh, played. Uh, the last thing that we'd want to talk about are these uh, fashionable opinions. You mentioned that earlier as well. I think that's just really interesting that there are some things that are just taken to be fashionable and because they are fashionable, they hold a certain sway over people. And we've already discussed a number of these fashionable opinions, Newtonianism, Cartesian uh, mechanics in the case of medicine. One sort of group of people that fall within these fashionable opinions are the doctors, especially in the 18th century. Uh, for the reasons that we just discussed. And something that was equally interesting about these fashionable opinions is they are primarily transmitted orally. There are few published treatises about these skeptical ideas. And so I guess I'm just wondering how exactly were they influential? How did these doctors get their ideas out there across? Was it through their practice? Was it through like the day-to-day -day general practice with patients that sort of trickled down to the rest of the population? Was it through private correspondence? How did these ideas spread, particularly in the case of medicine? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting question. In fact, I've been thinking about this since writing my book. I, I mean, I think this, the, the simple answer is that it seems to be pr primarily oral. You know, that the, the role of doctors in early modern England must have been almost in, entirely done by word of mouth. And I think that doctors, you know, although we feel in retrospect that their therapy was completely wrong, you know, according to the, you know, what they thought were natural cures were, were not cures at all, but if, if anything may have done more harm than good. But alongside that, I think must have developed a very, very strong sort of, as it were, sort of bedside manner on the part of these doctors. I think they must have been very shrewd men. They're, they're obviously all men um, in, in, in this period. No, no female medical practitioners, according to the, um, who, who were actually accredited by the institutions that existed at the time. Obviously, there were healers, but 
sticking to the to these doctors do seem to have been the, the subject of a great deal of respect by contemporaries for reasons that are not entirely clear because the evidence must have been oral. The, the classic case of this is John Radcliffe, who made a fortune through his medical practice, through which he endowed the University of Oxford. And, you know, it, the money still pays for worthwhile initiatives at, at Oxford. And yet he, he published no, no real book at all, and yet was just very much respected for his shrewdness, I think, as a, as a, as a, as a doctor and an advisor of people. And uh, going back to the 17th century, it struck me thinking about this, that Robert Boyle, who is is quite critical of many aspects of contemporary medicine, clearly has great respect for many of his medical contemporaries, the doctors whom he knew. He clearly had a, you know, clearly believed that they had real insight into people's health and how to improve it. And that this was almost all done, as it were, orally. And we therefore only know about it through sort of satisfied reports and through this high reputation that they enjoyed at the time. Something we thought when considering whether doctors were influential through their practice or through uh, private correspondence or treaties or whatnot, which probably, as you say, it, it was um, through their role in the community, we were thinking how this affects our understanding of whether they were influential for upper class people or lower class people. Because throughout the book, but also when we read Keith Thomas's book, uh, it kept propping up the question, well, but are we talking about, like, who are we talking about? Whose beliefs are declining? You know, because of course, if we talk about uh, historians, intellectuals, the free thinkers, as we will shortly talk about, it's quite, clear perhaps that we're actually talking about educated people or um, upper class people whereas if we talk about the doctors i don't know in, in my mind i imagine the doctor in the little community going around and trying to convince their neighbors that perhaps certain things were due to imbalances in the humors rather than witches and things like that so how do you think that thinking about the practice of doctors affects our understanding of whose beliefs were affected, basically, and were declining. When I mentioned the case of Dr. John Radcliffe, he, we're, we're obviously talking about an elite physician who, whose fees were very high, who, there, who, who wasn't having much connection with the population at large. The, the medical profession, well, there's a great deal to be said about it, and clearly extended from an elite like Radcliffe down through mid middling practitioners to people with no with no qualifications at all and I I just really wouldn't want to get into discussion of that well for one thing I think that in in a way it's tangential I think to this to the issue of, of magic which is what my book is mainly concerned mainly concerned about but I think I would be happy to agree that there are large swathes of the population who are, are not very much affected by the intellectual debate that my book is concerned with at all, that there's this sort of huge swathe of popular culture, which is more or less completely immune to the kind of discussions that my that my book deals with. And that change there only takes place much later, perhaps as late as in the 19th and 20th centuries. And perhaps it's not even completed yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So finally, let's talk about the free thinkers. <laughs> we, we, we felt bad um, about keeping... Uh, the discussion on the free thinkers up to this point because they're quite prominent in your book 
And of course, also because we do philosophy. And so probably the model of the philosopher, uh, as it uh, is understood in popular culture, I think depends on the figure of the wit, like the persons who um, meet up in cafes and they hang out <laughs> and they discuss and debate and argue about probably little points. What I found interesting is that the, you um, attribute to them fashionable ideas. So probably I felt this burst of inferiority complex because like the figure of the philosopher is not super influential today. <laughs> Whereas at the time they seemed to have quite a sway on public opinion. Of course, one question was how public this opinion was. And you just said that probably it was not public as we're imagining it today. And another question is what, of course, it's really hard both to phrase it and I guess to address it, but what it is for an opinion to be fashionable. Because you mentioned that some people would even maintain their beliefs in the supernatural private out of shame or out of fear yet to voice them because they were not cool. So they really must have been fashionable, these opinions. So how are we to understand this fashion? Well, it, 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 it's quite elusive, but clearly there is a kind of public realm of fashionable discourse. And I suppose this is propagated or it's spread through places like coffee houses and public spaces like that, in which there's a kind of tone of discussion. And it's, it's, it's the tone of that discussion that defines attitudes to things like magic. And, and clearly, it, as we go through the 18th century, the, the sort of anti-magical tone of that is increasing. And that's why it becomes difficult for people to to admit to accepting supernatural phenomena, even if they do, that they're, they're, they're afraid of being ridiculed for holding views like this by other people who they meet in, in this public sphere that they're, they're encountering them with. And so it, by definition, it, it, it's a predominantly elusively oral ph phenomenon. And therefore, it's elusive in the historical record because it's only, it, it's only insofar as people write about it and either complain about it or to take confidence in it that we come across it and therefore give it, doing justice to it is quite is, is quite tricky yeah exactly we're also wondering from an historiographical point of view how can we be sure of their actual influence and how difficult it is to make a case about this oral phenomena for you as an Yes, I mean, obviously, well, I mean, obviously, we're dealing with with reportage. And therefore, you know, to that extent, it, it is a bit elusive. But it seems to me that the, the alternative is to just sort of say, well, because it's not written down, it therefore, it can't be true. And yet that that seems to fly against all of the evidence that suggests how influential it was. Yeah, yeah, that, that seems. Uh... Yeah, that was a uh fascinating takeaway from the book. Okay, so I think that sort of covers the four sort of main points that you want to bring across in your book about the decline of magic. Can I, sorry. No, please, of course. Can I ask one last thing about the free thinkers? Could you tell us something more about their background? Because, uh, like, who, who are they? Where do they come from? Because they seem to, there seem to be a bunch of cool kids coming up at a certain point out of nowhere and influencing public opinion. And I was wondering who were their parents, you know, uh, who are they? Well, I think they're probably, um, my image of a, of a typical free thinker is someone who has had a, 
a, a high class but probably superficial education, possibly at Oxford or Cambridge, <laughs> but you know, but which he didn't take very seriously. We, and he then is well off and a man of leisure and inhabits these these fashionable locations such as coffee houses, but also on the fringes of the royal court and and, and that. And they just spend a lot of time sitting around and talking and show these sort of sceptical attitudes that cause concern among more earnest figures like clergymen and and other professional people at the time who you know have have a sort of vested interest in in seriousness who are offended by the sort of rather flippant and 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 irreverent views that people in these sorts of locations take now obviously there's an element of caricature about that but i think that, that there is also a lot of truth in it of the significance of the, the these sort of lightly educated and flippant commentators who are seen as expressing these views that early in the period are seen as dangerous in relation to magic but gradually become accepted into the mainstream of opinion because it's seen that they are that they're not as harmful as they initially appeared exactly and this i, I find extremely illuminating as well because if we if we approach the question why did magic decline from a merely theoretical point of view it seems to me that something remains inexplicable whereas if we bring the question back to people and the real world and you have on the one hand clergymen who perhaps were a bit boring a bit serious a bit older and then you have this uh, fascinating and glamorous young uh, superficial dandies who are definitely not dangerous at least they don't come across as dangerous and atheists and satanists but just uh, appealing probably and i don't know alluring then then it's clear to understand why people started to see uh, a certain opinion as yeah more 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 appealing do you think there is a, a formal relation between their relaxed attitude and the fact that they didn't write anything or much well I mean, why should they write? Uh, you know, it seems to me that their métier is oral, and in, in a way, they had no incentive to write. I mean, one of the one of the instances that, that I get that, that my book devotes quite a lot of space to is is this restoration with John Wagstaff, and I I would like to claim that I would like to see his book as being an unusual example of ideas that otherwise would normally have been only expressed orally being put into print. But I mean, in a way, that's a hypothesis on my part, but it seems very plausible. And he so exactly matches the kind of ideas that other people are complaining are only otherwise orally expressed. Okay, so if I can conclude now, (laughs) uh, I just wanted to, we just wanted to just ask, just uh, because, you know, your book, obviously, as we've already spoken about, points back to Keith Thomas's book, Religion and the Kind of Magic. And I'm just, I'd be very interested to know, first of all, what the status of Thomas's book is in the field uh, as non-historians. You know, for us, we've just read Keith Thomas's book in 1971 and your book in 2020, and uh, we don't know what happens in between. So what is going on? How is it viewed? And just what you take the relationship between your book and his to be. Yeah, no, I'm very interested, very happy to talk about that. Keith Thomas's book is now is is 50 years old. Well, was 50 years old in 2021. And to celebrate that, there was a sort of conference at, at Oxford, which a number of people gave appraisals, retrospective appraisals of Keith Thomas's book. And in a way, it just made clear how great the statue of, of the book is, you know, that it, it I think, has un- completely changed the landscape of how people think about early modern thought and indeed about a 
lot of human thought generally. And when I think back to when I first encountered the book, you know, it was it was extraordinary the kind of sources that he looked at and the kind of questions he was asking, which I don't think anyone had really ever done before. And so it was, you know, mind blowing the book. But the reason for my book was a dissatisfaction about. The, the relationship between the subject matter of Keith Thomas's book and its title, because there's so little in it about the decline of magic. It's almost entirely devoted to exploring the prevalence of the ideas which I was interested in the decline of at their heyday. And in a way, one of its m- morals is to get historians to take seriously ideas that they would otherwise have dismissed as being unworthy, if you like, of the thinkers who evidently held them. And in a way, I feel that this accounts for the problem that I identified in the book and which gave me the reason for writing mine was, which was that so, so little of it is actually about the decline of magic. It's, it's own, you know, only 40 pages out of 700 deal directly with that issue. And I was wanting to try to find out more, you know, to explore in more detail these, uh, the, the, the process by which the decline occurred. Now, of course, Keith Thomas's chapter on the decline of magic, and there's also an ancillary chapter on the decline of witchcraft, and in a way they have to be read together, is brilliant insofar as it goes, but it's only, as I say, very brief. And it canvases these alternative views of new knowledge, new technology and new aspirations and, and juxtaposes them. And it's, it, it, I mean, in a way, it, it's, it's a brilliant tour de force. And yet, and yet you sort of read it once and think, gosh, that's brilliant. And then you read it again and think, well, but it leaves so, so much unsaid. And I was really trying to fle- flesh out in, in more detail, using the material that that I'd come across over the years to do that, in order to come up with a more nuanced picture. And I think that one thing that I think that my book does do that Keith Thomas's doesn't is to illustrate that it's not really to do with science. <laughs> I mean that that I think is is one major achievement of my book, particularly in relation to my chapter on the Royal Society. That the Royal Society just didn't kill magic, con- contrary to what people in the in the Victorian period and in the 20th century had, had claimed. The, the Royal Society didn't ever test out the magical phenomena that was ultimately to be discarded. It just ignored them. And, and so science was clearly not what, what it was that was bringing about the decline of magic. Although uh, later, the, the, the Newtonian the Newtonian worldview is brought in to support that, but I think that it's fairly clear from my book it wasn't it wasn't due to a direct causation between the two. It, it's an, it's only an indirect one, as we've identified in our discussion so far. And and just you know, I'm sorry, you're getting rather a lot of me now, but um, no, no, never mind. And the other thing is that I I felt that Keith Thomas's book so it moves so fast that it it doesn't ever really get get into cases in great detail. So that's what seemed to me to be the strength of instances like mine, like the drummer of Tedworth or the case of Wagstaff or the case of Hatsahan Sloan treating John Beaumont, that by going into these de- detailed cases, one came up with much more insight in many ways than one did by rushing through hundreds and thousands of cases in a relatively brief space of time, as Keith Thomas does. So brilliant as, as, as Keith Thomas's method is, it had its limitations, which I would like to argue that my book, to some extent, rectifies. One thing, so what, one of my, uh, I think my favourite aspect of Keith Thomas's book is 
one of the conclusions that he gives for why the decline of magic occurs, and you've mentioned that briefly, new aspirations. And I always like that uh, explanation because it's such a difficult thing to prove. It's difficult to show historically that people held new aspirations. And he shows a bunch of things like the growth of insurance companies and atti changing attitudes in medicine and how people thought they could deal with new problems to sort of show, I guess, the consequences of these new aspirations. Uh, but to actually show this change in, in people is very uh, tricky. Am I correct in thinking that you share this idea that you also see in your in, in your book as suggesting that one of the reasons for the decline of magic is this uh, development of greater self-confidence in people that they can deal with the world that maybe is not reducible to science it's not reducible to new technology but is again part of this intangible abstract development of how people thought about how they could deal with the world Yes, I, I think I, I agree. Yes, I mean, I would second that view of Keith Thomas's quite, quite a lot, except I would think I would express it in a slightly different way. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with it, but I would express it in terms of the reason for objecting to magic rather than just sort of not needing it. And it seems to me, and again, this is something I possibly could have brought out more. And if I thought about this in advance, I perhaps should have done. But it seems to me that the, the, the objection to magic is that it is capricious, uncontrollable. It's not part of a kind of rational, accountable universe. And, and that's, that's the reason for objecting to it. So it's that unpredictability about magic, that view that people are able through magic to achieve things that they shouldn't be able to achieve, or that things just appear from nowhere out of ma by magic that shouldn't really be happening. That's what people are trying to, in a way, trying to eradicate. So, so I'm, I'm saying the same thing as Keith Thomas, but in a slightly in a slightly different way and one one more question uh on on this we're almost uh we're almost uh, ending but unlike keith thomas's book yours is titled the decline of magic exactly so religion disappears from the title however you do talk about clerics and you do talk about the orthodox thinkers and you do explained that clerics gradually adopted a skeptical attitude towards magic in the 18th century as well. This seems quite aligned with Thomas's point that, unlike magic, religion survives by losing some part of its supernatural commitments, of those commitments that were overlapping between religion and magic. And we were thinking about this and we thought, well, it seems that nowadays as well, religion is going through a decline of its own, at least in the Western world. So very speculative, but do you think that a new story for the decline of religion could be given and that perhaps it could be similar uh, in some respects to the one you gave to vindicate the decline of magic. You mean, might religion go, well, I mean, in a sense, you could argue that religion has been going the same way as, as magic, that the, 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 the all-enveloping power of religion and the social role played by religion in the 20th century is undoubtedly in decline in the in the 21st and maybe that that is going to continue inexorably although i suspect that what will happen will be that we will there will be a sort of leveling out and that religion will survive but in a much smaller space than it currently occupies um, and here, here we come actually to one to, to the one of the final points in in my decline of magic book, in which I talk about 
the, what, what I describe as the balance of antagonisms, quoting the Victorian thinker Thomas Carlyle, but as mediated through the Brazilian intellectual prairie and as expounded by Peter Burke. <laughs> but basically, this concept of a balance of antagonisms, in other words, this ability of Western thought to contain completely disparate trends, but for these to coexist without, perfectly happily to coexist, seems to me to be a key to the future, not only of magic, but of religion. Because, of course, you know, I, I, my book is called The Decline of Magic, as if magic has declined. Whereas, of course, there is another. there, there was another book published by Yale just a few months before mine by Thomas Waters called Cursed Britain, which argues that magic has, in fact, survived <laughs> and is alive and well with us now. And you see, I'm not at all phased by this because it seems to me that, that this is the nature of modern Western thought, that it's per perfectly capable of holding within it completely contradictory tendencies. So on the one hand, people can believe implicitly in magic and develop elaborate magical systems. And if anything, we've seen a rise of magic, haven't we, in recent years through Harry Potter and all of that. And why not? And meanwhile, religion is, I think, still in its in a, in a steady process of decline, but possibly beginning to sort of level out, although it's not quite clear what will happen to the Church of England and the whole superstructure when that, you know, as, as that occurs. But basically, religion won't die out. It will just become a minority cult, rather like magic is. And so I, I, I don't have any trouble with that. Yeah, yeah and, and, I, and I think that the lesson to bring home from your approach to subject, it seems to me to be uh, an apology of complexity and um, a, a rejection of any overly simplistic and one-sided narrative. Yeah, one gets the impression, even after having read all that you've written, because of the oral tradition, because of all these things that we can't put our fingers on, there will always be aspects of explanation that will be missing and we, all we can do is point at them and understand the fully yeah. complex picture that yeah. we're faced with so that, yeah that speaks so thank you <laughs> yeah, yeah thank you for that it was wonderful to engage with okay so uh, just a final question that we um asked to all my uh guests uh what are you working on right now well in, in fact it's related to the last part of our discussion it's to do with attitudes to religion i I mean, in, in The Decline of Magic, I talk about this slightly idealized concept of atheism as being almost a kind of mindset that isn't, you know, that is, is, it's hard to claim is really truly atheistic, but is clearly corrosive of, of accepted values and skeptical and, you know, and, and worries the orthodox a lot. But, but you know, it's actually quite a, quite an elusive concept. And I often use, often in that book, place atheism in inverted commas in order to do justice to the extent to which we're talking about something that is not really absolute atheism in a modern sense, but is just, is almost kind of generalised scepticism and, and iconoclasm towards accepted ideas, but which the orthodox rightly see is linked to more extreme positions and has potential for developing in that direction in certain cases. And so what I've done, what I've been doing since The Decline of Magic is writing another book, which is due out in 2023, about atheism in the sense of, as it were, real atheism, or as close as you come to real atheism in the period before the Enlightenment. And it, it's really, it, it really deals predominantly with just three 
cases, three instances of, of people who were avowed atheists by any standards, by modern standards, particularly one, Thomas Aikenhead, who was executed for, for being a blasphemer in Edinburgh in 1697. But there are two other there are two other cases as well, one another Scottish one of a man called Archibald Pitcairn, who wrote a, a, a really astonishingly overt atheistic treatise, which only came to light in 2016 when I published published it. And also a, a Cambridge figure called Tinkler Duckett, who was expelled from the University of Cambridge in 1739 as an atheist. But, but by taking these cases and then giving them a broader background in, in terms of other instances, particularly Christopher Marlowe, who has been written about so much that I didn't want to go into him in great detail, but, you know, just allude to his views and also the Earl of Rochester and others. I've come up with this sort of scenario of there being real people who were really destructive of existing religion at the time and who suffered for it obviously intensely in Aikenhead's case but nevertheless do do account for the anxiety you know help help account more perhaps than the vague penumbra that I've been describing in my magic book um, they account for the, the the extreme hostility that such views achieve what I wanted to say about them and this again links back to the magic book is that what these thinkers show is a supreme assurance. That's a phrase that I use to describe the people who are skeptical about magic and the decline of magic. But I've extended it now to, 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 to look at these um, thinkers who are, as I say, as close as you come to real atheists in the period. And they, they are assured. They know they're right. They are not doubters. And I want to take issue with those who conflated the history of atheism with the history of doubt. And it seems to me the history of doubt is essentially part of the history of religion, whereas the history of irreligion is a history much more of certainty. And that's what my book puts forward. Whether people be, will be convinced by it remains to be well, seen. That sounds uh, awesome. Yeah, and, sounds fascinating. Um, yeah, we look forward to discussing that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time. It was hugely enjoyable to discuss your book with you. And thank you for writing it. It was excellent to read. Good. Well, thank you. for. I, I enjoyed the discussion. Excellent. Thank okay. you. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Hi, all. So that was Michael Hunter. I thought that was a fantastic interview. Yeah, it's super fascinating. Also, I've been dying to talk about this topic since we um, read uh, Keith Thomas's book. So yeah. it feels like um, it's the, the conclusion of a circle. Yeah, in many ways it is, right? That was the sort of the impression we got from the end of the interview. Uh, so uh, I will jump in with what I thought was really an interesting theme of our interview. Please. And that was this whole thing that kept cropping up about why people believe some things and not other things. And sort of the idea that people didn't really seem to be swayed by arguments. They were just, they sort of came, they just started out convinced by some position because of, I don't know, some more fundamental predisposition and they will just argue across each other yeah and there didn't seem to be any sort of progress in the development of the argument people just seem to just disagree with each other well i think it's tricky though because i mean eventually 
progress was made. <laughs> so there must have been some sort of evolution in it, it. You know, it can't be simply that people with different dogma um, clash. There, there must be a level of understanding and uh, uh, constructive disagreement, which I think is also what stays at the core of Michael Hunter's book and what he the difficulty he was triggered by originally when he started researching on this because it seems to me that he's trying to pin down an atmosphere and a change in mm -hmm. not in a rational belief that people I don't know inferred from some premises but it, a, an evolution in a background broad mindset yeah which of course is difficult to track yeah so i mean you, you're right to point out that so on the one hand we have michael hunter's description of how these debates went which seems to be very and which seems to be very entrenched um and on the other hand we have like you said obviously some kind of progress there's obviously a point at which supernatural beliefs are taken less seriously they're held by fewer people and up until the modern age now we seem to be distinctively less superstitious or to believe in fewer supernatural phenomena than people used to so clearly some and we, and we sort of seem to also be more closely aligned in some respect to the free thinkers we're sort of skeptical about things more than we're, we're more readily skeptical than ready to believe in supernatural phenomena Although Michael did mention that uh, book, I looked into it, The Cursed Britain, yeah. which actually our circle is not concluding <laughs> in the slightest. I think we should definitely read that at the very least, because yeah. I can also see how someone may say that the opposite is true, that actually supernatural beliefs are alive and with us. They just have a different form. Yeah, I wonder what the argument there is, because it really does seem... Uh, especially from uh, Keith Thomas's book, which gives a much more broad uh, picture of society, it does look as if supernatural beliefs form an essential aspect of life. It's like part of your day-to-day -day activity that you try to mitigate certain misfortunes or you try to bring about certain good fortunes. Mm. And we don't seem to have that. It's that, seem, that, that sort of sphere seems to have tightened it's smaller there are fewer things or fewer people maybe that's interesting though because when you started to um, talk i was about to say well for example we have this idea of serendipity or coincidences yeah. today which i think is a lessened version of destiny but it it, it is very um imbuing of every aspect of our life but then you said that the beliefs in the supernatural determine the agency of people because you would actively try to modify these things by hiring uh, the cunning man or whatever. Yeah. Which is actually not <laughs> the way in which we think of coincidences. In a way, it's as if nowadays these beliefs in the supernatural and in, I don't know, what's it's, it's what beyond our control and we can't do anything about it so yeah I can put effort to find a job and I don't know make a life that I like but 
at the end of the day, there's something I can't control. But even if you were to get a job and say, oh, what a coincidence that I, I met that person at that time and that led to this, w you wouldn't think that there was some greater agency behind it, would you? Mm. You, you, you would have the feeling of the mysterious and you'd have that sort of feeling that, oh, I mean, this is just too good of a coincidence to just be just chance. But if I, if I, but if someone really pushed you to say, well, what do you mean? I don't think you'd ever conclude with no. there is someone out there who is moving certain parts such that this would have happened. Yeah, I wonder if at the time they did have a base for this. Do you think to this extent? I think so, yeah. Because, so there were witches. Yeah. Mm, then there's astrology. So that's the planets and the stars determining events. Uh, then there was all kinds of magic that depended on other people. So if something bad happened to you because someone cast a curse on um, cursed you or cast a spell on you or something like that. I mean, it's interesting. Or God's displeasure. I fully agree that we lost the the belief in this agency, but I'm not sure if there's no room for agency at all but i mean this is probably disputable and very personal what what's remarkable is that as a difference it's just that less we common are, yeah we're, we're much more passive towards the modificability of our own i was to say destiny but then i also just thought about all the american rhetorics about like well, create just, your own future. Well, I just don't think we believe in destiny in the same way as we used to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some people who might think that things are just determined and you can't do anything about it. But I don't think people who think... But I think I don't think everyone thinks like that. I think people are quite convinced that they can do a lot about their lives, uh, influence a lot about their lives. Or people, I think people tell themselves, at the very least, people do tell themselves narratives about how they are responsible for their own lives and what they've done. Tell Maybe. me what, what would be very um, exciting to understand better is the difference between the following. There is a sense in which we nowadays say that we can influence our future, mm -hmm. which means, I don't know, put effort uh, or widen your network or whatever it is. Yeah. And there is a sense in which they at the time thought you can influence your future, which uh, consisted of go and hire the cunning man or I don't know, um, throw salt mm -hmm. behind your left shoulder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think you see what I'm trying to guess at. Um, how are the two related? You know, is, uh, is the mindset is the mental state similar? Are they both intentions um, or, or not? Or yeah. one is in, in intention and one is a leap of faith, even though they look formally the same? It feels as if they're trying to extend their, the, the, the sphere of what they can influence by using these kinds of supernatural techniques. So it kind of looks like an intention. Yeah, but the by the what I'm saying is that in one in the in the supernatural belief scenario, 
Because it seemed to me that in the supernatural belief scenario, um, it's a leap of faith because it can go well, it can go wrong. You don't know exactly how it works. Mm. Whereas when we talk about influencing our life nowadays, we mean uh, taking some steps that we know by and large, which could also be, I don't know, I want to be fitter, therefore I eat well. And I, we know scientifically in that case sure. that that will happen. Whereas at the time, what I wonder is, did they have a, a sort of quasi-scientific self-understanding of what they were doing? Something like, oh, I'm sure. Were they as sure well, the that is, what they were doing would create that outcome as we are sure that eating healthy would make you fitter? I think they were sure, yeah. I think at least the way that they're described in Keith Thomas's book um, and also the way, in, um, what's his name? The guy that has the Ted Wood case. He's quite sure. Ah, oh, what's his name? For God's sake. I anyway, very bad with names. Um, they seem to be certain. Yeah, and I think it's because they're certain that it takes so long for magic to decline because they're more ready to believe. Or, or I mean, also it's just confirmation bias, right? They just they focus more on the times when it works and when it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, also, just to turn what you said a bit against um, itself, we we don't fully understand why exercising is good for us you and i i mean as laymen we, we don't actually know the science behind the connection within exercise and feeling good or exercise and longer life expectancy and so there is a it's not the same leap of faith obviously but there is a kind of mystery in the way that we act now obviously we put our faith in science Faith is the wrong word. We put our trust in science because science seems to have delivered the goods many times. Well, it's also to do with reliance on experts. Exactly, yeah. And I think very few people would have a theory of knowledge where you know only if you yourself uh, figure it out because, I mean, otherwise no one would know anything because we rely on mm, specialists all the time. But then I see what you mean that, well, <laughs> they were doing the same. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because the cunning men, the witches, the wise women, they were specialists. They knew how to interpret the world. They knew which words to say, when to say it, under which planet, under which constellation, at which time of day. Uh, I mean, it's actually a very... When you, if, we go, if you go back to sort of the astrology chapter, especially in Keith Thomas's book, it's absurdly precise, scientific, almost. Uh, the aspiration, at least, is scientific. How they approach, um, how they approach giving advice to people. So you know, it's something like you know, it involves so much math of calculating which planets will be where to decide whether you know you should go on your journey on this day and not on this day because mm -hmm. this is a good day to do it mm -hmm. for reasons that they can give. They can actually explain to you why. It's not just that. So, yeah. How did we get here? <laughs> I'm not sure, but something else that I wanted to point out is that more than once uh, mm. in the discussion, also something else cropped up, which was the um, question, who are we talking about? Right. Because yeah. also now we were talking about we and they. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not clear. Well, to be frank, it's not clear who we is either, but mm. surely it's not clear who they uh, is either because... Um, we also talked 
about this with Michael Hunter and he, if I understood him correctly, tended to say that he is talking about the decline of supernatural beliefs amongst the, if not intellectuals, uh, upper class. Yeah. Society, whereas the supernatural beliefs stuck with the lower classes for longer. But then, but this, I think, raises interesting question about the methodology and, and like in a historiographical setting, because we're talking about the decline of magic for a certain class, but that is not mm, that well made explicit, yeah. I would say, in the book. And we are looking at evidence that have to do not only with the predominance of these beliefs within that class, but also with the lower class. Yeah. I don't know, it seems what I'm trying to say is that if the decline run on two parallel lanes, uh, or one was a fast track lane where the decline was faster, then it seemed to me it would be worth separating the two discourses mm. to begin with. But then I also understand that probably that's impossible because people, I don't know, influence each other. Or, I mean, if it works with history, it's not... I mean, also, I guess it must be very difficult to to know what the average person thought. I mean, all this, the, the, the material that uh, Michael Hunter draws on treatises... Um, correspondence between doctors or that kind of stuff is not it, it'll be harder to find amongst uneducated people so you're looking for anecdotes right made by others well but great part of the evidence both in this book and in keith thomas's book is anecdotes and yeah. something we draw a lot upon is how many people went to visit the haunted house yeah and those people were not all doctors you know, but from that piece of evidence, we, we we do a lot with it. We say, ah, you see, so the, there was more interesting then than in this other moment where less people went to visit the haunted house. Um, I'm like, okay, but those people are not the people who wrote the treatises, which... Mm. Yeah, I think it's also the case probably that the way these clerics, for example, the orthodox thinkers thought about supernatural phenomena is probably not the way common people thought about it uh, they probably had the clerics probably had a very uh theological interpretation of it that probably involved a lot of fancy thinking um again one of the big takeaways from keith thomas's book is that popular belief sort of ran riot it just sort of went by their own logic so and and he does distinguish between popular belief and sort of educated belief. So I guess Michael Hunter's book is about the decline of magic amongst the educated classes. And it it doesn't say um it doesn't talk about the the it non-literate uh, people who seem to have continued to believe in supernatural phenomena, yeah. Yeah, I wonder then what uh, the other book cursed Britain um is about because maybe that is about the more popular beliefs mm -hmm. and so it would be consistent <coughs> with Michael Hunter's book rather than being uh, yeah. in opposition with it yeah good okay maybe we'll uh, maybe one day we'll interview the 
the author of Crosscuts, and who knows? <laughs> I think I should at this point. Okay, then. Well, Julia, thank you very much for doing the interview with me. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was really good fun to interview Michael Hunter and talk about these topics. And uh, thank you to you, uh, all of you, for tuning in, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Uh, please uh, feel free to get in touch, leave a comment on the website. And this is the last episode of season two. So Congratulations. Thank you very much, yeah. And I think that's all from us then. Uh, make sure to uh, follow me on Twitter and share me with your family and friends who you think would be interested. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. So thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.